Your time is now. The world needs leaders. It's up to you to answer the call. Be better in business. Be better in life. Joined by our host, Chris Book. This is Leading by the Book. Hey guys, welcome to episode 20 of Leading by the Book. We have some extra special guests with us today. So we are joined by Roger Herney and Dave Anderson, and they are the founders of Off Madison Ave. And the background here is that Off Madison was the first job, and actually the first internship, I ever had a good 15 years ago, maybe? That sounds about right. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. been, been a little while now. I've, I've lost a little bit of hair and gotten a little bit more gray. But we, we want to talk to, to these guys um, for a variety of reasons. One, and perhaps most significantly, this is the 20th anniversary of Off Madison Ave, which I think, especially in, in the agency business, which is what you guys do, and we'll get more into that in a little bit here, that's a big deal. Agencies don't typically stand the test of time like that, and specifically partnerships don't stand the test of time like that as well. Um, so I think your partnership is certainly something that, that we want to touch on here, but just the fact that you've created a company like this in, in a market like this in Phoenix that has, has really had staying power like that, I think is really interesting for our guests to listen to. Now, in addition to that, you've had a couple other endeavors along the way as, as co-founders here, and right now you have Lighthouse P.E., and how would I best describe that? Is that would you call it a location services firm or um, Lighthouse PE is a proximity marketing uh, software development kit SDK mm-hmm. for applications so that you can understand an app's users' behaviors and then be able to provide them the right either experience on the app itself or a human to human connection by uh, sending them a company representative when they're on your property. And I've gotten a chance to to actually head into your offices here and take a look at the technology in recent weeks, and it's pretty cool. And I, I think the future is is bright for you guys, and I, I think you're going to start hearing that name a little bit more here. But for the sake of this, I want to back it up a little bit. I want to talk about the history of OMA, and for you guys specifically, how you came to work together, what was the re- relationship like, and in those early days, how did you really get to the growth stage where you ultimately found yourselves? It started with Dave showing up in front of my house saying, I have an empty credit card. You want to start an agency? <laughs> no, there's a lot of truth to that. Well, for, for years, we would talk about the VC funding, and VC stood for Visa card That's... in that case. But but really, what was the crux here? Did you guys, I mean, obviously, you knew each other prior, but what was the relationship like prior to creating the company? So Roger and I both worked at another agency here in town um, where Roger was the CD creative director. And I had gone to this agency and started the PR group and kind of moved into a general manager role. And for a whole host of reasons that can be told over a couple beers some night, Chris, Roger, and I just decided to go off and start our own um, thing and um, kind of brought together the creative world and the public relations world um, together into an agency. There were conversations, though, around understanding what could be next inside of an agency. Digital was just kind of getting started. You mm-hmm. know, the web was kind of a thing. Um, we saw an opportunity based on our acumen with how groups inside of an agency should connect and how they should work with clients um, and not just produce ads that you should be agnostic by channel. You should be agnostic by message. Um, we weren't able to do that at that last firm, 
And so it became evident pretty clearly in about a year conversations. A lot of, over the course of a year, there were a lot of conversations around that subject matter. Mm-hmm. It became sort of a foregone conclusion that we should start a place. And then the stars just sort of aligned and we said, okay, let's, let's go build the first agency that does these types of things. Sure. And when you did it in a market like Phoenix, what was the thought behind that? Because obviously, you know, Phoenix is not what you would refer to as, as a true agency town, the way we would, we would look at, at New York specifically, or even Chicago or San Francisco in that regard. And I, I believe you worked in San Francisco in the agency business right. for a little bit. Uh, well, one, we lived here. So, and neither one yeah. of us, I think, were willing to move at the moment. Okay. But honestly, Phoenix is an incredibly entrepreneurial town. Uh, and that's why the restaurant industry, uh, other sorts of franchises, there's a lot of businesses that start here because it's just the community here is so conducive to starting your own business. Um, you don't have the same kind of hurdles that you do in other, country, other countries, in other cities. Uh, I know in San Francisco, just, I mean, rent almost makes that cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the opportunity was both, you know, convenient. But it's also a pretty darn good place to start a business. Yeah, we also, I think the name, I know the name sums it up off Madison Ave that, um, you know, Madison Ave was much more in the heyday back in the late 90s when we started. And, um, you know, Roger had worked for the largest agency on the planet, McCann Erickson. And we, there's a lot of good talent in this market. And our philosophy was you don't have to be on Madison Ave to get great work done to get forward thinking to find good people and so the name was very deliberate um with us being in this market um you know put us up against some of those big names or other markets and we can compete that way sure plus the name was also a position against everything else that was happening it wasn't hey if you're madison avenue traditional off madison ave is going to embrace new technologies it's going to embrace new ways of doing things it's going to embrace digital and that alternative thinking, that lateral thinking was baked in from day one. It's interesting when you tell people you're from Phoenix, even to this day, I don't think they they give you the respect that it rightfully deserves. And, and a lot of people, you know, so, something you get a lot is, oh, it's so hot and all this. But when when we started our company in 2010 or 11, there was a lot of pressure to do it in the Bay Area. And to your point, it's so incredibly cost prohibitive. And you're now starting to see VCs more readily invest in companies that are in places like Indianapolis. And obviously, Chicago's big, which, at least for a big city, has a relatively low cost of living. But Boulder really popped up there. A lot of these kind of mid-major cities really started to establish prominence. And in a place like Phoenix, for instance, we've got a university here, a couple major universities very close. It's at one point, I think, was maybe the fifth largest metropolitan area in the country. And when you combine that with the cost of living and for companies that are going to be very cash poor at the beginning, there's no reason not to look at it. And the the funny thing about it, though, is that's such a counterintuitive thought, especially in, in a business like the agency business or, you know, if you're running a, a tech startup, for instance, you got to go be in these markets because you feel like you want to be with the big boys. Well, you're going to get pretty dismal results if you, if you do that. So I, I think that's an interesting approach. Well, I mean, look at a company like Zappos. I mean, they started off in yeah. VC and they ended up going to Las Vegas, not because of technology, but because that's where the service industry was, and they felt they were more of a service-oriented company than a technology company. Yeah. So, you know, and they've done obviously pretty well. Yeah, and times have so drastically changed too. I mean, we alone have employees in 
Maryland, in Boulder, Colorado, in two in Boulder, Colorado, in uh, Southern California. I mean, yeah, the location is important, but not as important as it used to be. Sure. And Roger's right. You know, we have a, a governor who's a former entrepreneur here. We have an incredibly um, entrepreneurial, friendly environment here, pro-business. Um, what I'm a Sun Devil, so I have to say this. So look what's going on at ASU with the entrepreneurial school sure. and what they're doing from a technology. This has become a great place to start and grow a business. Another another place that doesn't get enough love is is ASU specifically. You know, ASU has the stigma of being a party school and all that, and I think that probably follows any anywhere when you get to go to school and and wear shorts, <laughs> three hundred sixty five days a year. But you know, for somebody that went to a lot of schools, the education that I got at ASU matches up anywhere else. And I think at the end of the day, it probably just comes back to the student themselves and and what they try to get out of it. Yeah. But yeah, so but that's if a you, stigma we have to fight. You know, number one most innovative school two years in a row over Stanford and MIT. That's that that, that should make you a real school. Sure. <laughs> All plus, I think they've got, depending on what study you read, they're neither number one or number two journalism school in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's and pretty amazing. Within that business, the business school overall, I think, is a top twenty-five business school, and there's some programs within it like supply chain that are very, very yeah. highly rated. By the way, supply chain, something I did not appreciate until I really started working in the retail world. That, that is a significantly important in, endeavor. So good for them for that. So go, going back to the early phases of the company, for each of you individually, was this your first company? Startup? Yeah, yeah, the, the first company you uh, other you than the shoveling snow or cutting a few lawns. Um, you know, entrepreneurial stuff. Um, any first, anything significant? Yeah, anything significant. I mean, I freelance for a few years. It is your own sort of gig, but it's not. There's no legal entity. Sure. <laughs> there's there's no employees. And, and so, I, I think that's a fascinating thing thing to dive into because your first real company on its own, it's, it's kind of an oh crap moment. A lot of the times, was it better or worse having a partner right out of the gate? Because for a lot of people, having somebody to share that burden with and to bounce stuff off of is very good. But it can also go the other way for people and be a tremendous challenge. I thought it was good. And, and honestly, we sort of had two years of two to three years of a test practice because we ran the other agency day to day. And so we understood our roles and we understood where we needed to make decisions. And I think that honestly helped out because I think we had two or three years of sort of training that we didn't realize would come in handy. Yeah. Um, and so I, I found that to be, to, to me, I don't feel like there was pressure to be perfectly honest with you. So, and I don't think having a partner or not having a partner, I mean, I, on a personal note, I had a portfolio I could rely on and I could go out and get another job. Honestly, I think we were just naive. Um, we had enough knowledge from the previous agency to help get things going and a point of view and a philosophy, and that seemed to be enough. And and being a little ignorant of all the obstacles, I think actually was a benefit. That's my POV, Dave. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. I think having a partner, I know, you know, tons and tons and tons of entrepreneurs. And yeah, there's pros and cons to everything, but having somebody to share the successes and share the misery is, um, you know, I think the two heads are better than one. I will say that the um you know what I would attribute the success of a partnership for you know 20 years now 
the most important thing we did was on day one, um, as you know, 50-50 owners of an organization, we agreed on here's the issues that Roger has final say on. I'm always – I can give my input. I can jump up and down. I can scream. I can yell. I can do whatever. But at the end of the day, these issues, he has the final say on, and I have to respect that. And then there's a separate list on our side. And we established that literally like day one. We searched the internet and we found a partnership agreement and we wrote it in. And that to me is the single biggest, you know, part of our of why we've been able to keep it going because we had very clear lines, even though you're fifty fifty owners and we have respected that throughout the entire time. Well, there's plenty of times he hasn't liked what I've ultimately decided or I haven't liked what he've ultimately decided, but we discuss it. We both can walk away and say we got our input in, um, but I, re- I will respect that you made that decision, and let's go have a beer. One of the things I'd written down a little bit later to talk about was just that was decision-making. Do you think that breaking it out like that has helped you guys to make faster decisions? Oh, hands down. Yeah. Be- because individually, we make decisions as if we didn't have a partner, but we have the reliance of a partner's knowledge and input in the decision. 20 years later, it's literally like being married. He'd be like, yeah, like, hey, Roger, I did this. Yeah, kind of figure. No problem. You know, it's just almost because there's there's very few things that require a lengthy conversation because 20 years later, you've seen just about everything, too. You've been in a lot of the same situations. We learn by making more mistakes than we can even count, um, you know, and what to try to do better the next time. I don't think people really realize how important it is to make fast decisions. There's a tremendous, tremendous amount of risk that that goes into making decisions. So I've been involved in organizations where a pivotal, pivotal decision, like a a go-no-go, like this could save the company or potentially kill it decision, takes two and a half years to make. And and it's not just like from beginning to end a process. It's like, all right, we've done all the work. We've done the analysis. We're sitting here. We're in this room. We're going to make the decision. And then it's next week. Well, let's look at this. And then the following week, it's, it's let's look at this. And so even if you were to make that wrong decision, that's actually better than making no decision. And, and I think part of your staying power has to be linked to the speed with which you were able to move. And, and obviously, you guys have employed technology and really had that thought process from, from the early days of the company. But the way you make decisions is something that I don't think people appreciate nearly enough in terms of the health of an organization. Some people just get paralyzed by all the data and concerned about what if I make a mistake? Oh my gosh, we've made more mistakes than I can count, uh, as David attributed to. But if you make a mistake, you sit there and go, okay, now let's just go fix that one and not do that one again. And it's believe it or not, it's a lot easier to fix something and move forward in a positive way than it is to just belabor it and belabor it until you're paralyzed from even making a decision. Quick case in point. Um, I, I don't even know what the subject was, but Dave just recounted this to me the other day. Um, we had our, our CFO need to make a decision on something. And he said, Dave goes, what do you want to do? He goes, well, I'm still looking at the data, she was saying, and you know, still contemplating the decision. He goes, just make a decision. He goes, the worst thing is that's a mistake and we fix it. There are very few things that are truly fatal, but we, we make yeah. decisions as if every one of them is fatal. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it, you know, if I could go back 20 years to day one and, you know, I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. I'm part of an entrepreneurial organization. 
if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you just got to accept that you're going to fail at probably more things than you succeed at, and you just got to look at them as learning uh, opportunities. Sure. You know, you just got to be okay with failure, and you know what? You got to, in a weird way, you got to celebrate it. You got to be like, well, it's a hard lesson to learn, but I learned it, and I know when, you know, there's so many things. I think so many, you know, younger people, entrepreneurs, people starting out are so afraid of making mistakes and a shame that goes along with it. It's just part of life. Get over it, learn from it, um, and go forward. Yeah, there, there's value to be had in all of this. So to that end, are there any decisions that you guys made as a company? Obviously, the, the, the first decision was forming the company and then then really laying out who is going to do what. But are there any key decisions you, you look back on with the company that absolutely were critical in putting you guys on the path that you ultimately ended up on? Well, well, you were. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say hiring Chris Book. I thought that yeah, was exactly. like. <laughs> yeah, that's what one. I was going to say, too. I mean, we attribute it all to you. So, no, but I would um, I, I, I would say that, um, you know, while Roger and I started as a very um, traditional type of agency, and you were very involved in this when we joined forces with our dear friend uh, Jay Bear, which you came on board shortly after that or right as that was going on. Yeah, I think things were, were kind of in the process of being finalized yeah. and integrated, yeah. You know, we had many decisions about growing our digital um, organically or, you know, going with Jay and combining our companies together. And I would say that was one of our major and smart decisions because it kind of, leapfrogged us into the digital space much quicker than many others that were still trying to figure it out or is this here to stay or whatever. You know, looking back on that period, so when I joined the company, I think it, it was probably within maybe a month or two of it becoming official. And, you know, since then, I've been part of quite a few mergers at, at different companies that I've been at. And I think back on that time period a lot because of how smooth that integration actually was. And I, I'm sure, you know, with this, the stuff that you guys saw, it might not have been as smooth as, as it looked to us you know, sitting sit at our desk every day. But it blew me away looking back on that. When, when I walked in there, I, and the productivity and the co cohesiveness uh, of the teams was, I mean, you, effectively you had two completely different companies that just very quickly had a shotgun wedding. At least it seemed like that for, <laughs> for us. And, and all of a sudden started working together and producing this amazing work. It was a little more pre it was more of a foregone conclusion with Jay okay. to a certain degree. I mean, one, you got to understand, I, I'm not sure how when you first met Jay, Dave, but I mean, I knew Jay since like 95, 96. So, you know, we had known each other, had, had worked together both as a, as a client and a vendor um, during that period of time. So uh, there was a history there. Also, you know, Dave had a, Dave's right. We had a decision point, whether we want, we want to grow this organically or do we want to, you know, partner with somebody. <clears throat> that wasn't a decision when we, you know, decided to do our deal with Jay. That decision was made two, three years earlier when we had conversations with Jay about whether or not we should be organic or grow it. And we decided like, okay, we'll have Jay be our guy. And at some point when he's ready, we'll acquire or merge the two companies together. He wanted to go do some things and we we're like, okay, we just won't build it organically. So there was a little bit of that. So there was a lot more legwork that was done that was never seen by anybody. The most important thing, however, is that culturally it was a fit. And that's where most companies make a mistake in M&A activity is that they don't met, you know, 
blend cultures correctly. Or, or they make assumptions that it's going right. to be fine or it will work itself out. So it was more of a seamless transition only because we'd been working with them for a couple of years anyway as sort of our digital arm. So with that culture, I guess, line of thought, one of the things that, that I think has really separated off Madison Ave from other agencies and, and specifically other companies that I've been at, and, and that includes companies like Disney even, is the culture component of it and how how actively you welcome people into the culture and how, in a sense, it, it seems that most people that work with the company actually view themselves as as the people that police the culture. And I think that's a very, very important thing just to ensure continuity. But I'm sure that from from your perspectives, you had to be very deliberate in creating that culture and determining what kind of culture you wanted to have and in taking a very detached view to make sure that you're maintaining that. So for, you know, how for, for somebody that's either starting a business or running a business now, how do they best approach a culture to make sure that, that they're putting, one, the, the right culture in place, and two, that they're, they're paying attention to any pitfalls to make sure that they don't get off the rails? Um, you know, a big part of the culture is our personalities and how Dave and I work together. I used to think that how we did things needed to be kept very close to the vest. And five or six years into the business and it being really successful, um, one of my friends who owned a couple of businesses reminded me, he said, you know, I don't think you understand how special the relationship that you and Dave have and that how that permeates through all parts of the organization. He said, you could take your business plan and philosophies and you could dump it on another agency's desk, another CEO's desk. They're not going to be able to pull it off because they just can't embrace that. They don't have the personality to embrace that type of inclusion, that type of entrepreneurial spirit in everybody that you hire. And that's when I realized that, okay, we do have something really special from a cultural standpoint. We don't necessarily dictate to everybody, here's what you need to do to be a part of the culture. Oh, and we, I, think, I think that's the beauty of it. And that, that's what I'm getting at. Is right. it, it's, it's in the air. You know, you don't, it's not written down anywhere. There's no rules or guides. Well, it, it's, it's just part of, of what you become when, when you join. As owners, are, we provide the guardrails for you know, a culture. You can't dictate a culture, but it's the people that you bring into the organization that create the culture, police the culture, like you said, that are the ones who this is the way we do things. Don't, you know, don't do that gossip. That's not how we work. You know, don't be critical. So you provide those guardrails that you that you give those people who truly care and want to look for a place to come to work every day and let them help build and guard and protect that culture going forward. Yeah. And we do have every new every new staffer that comes on Dave and I both meet with. We take out to lunch, and there's a history of the agency thing that I do. Dave sits in on it sometimes. We've always said these three verbal cues to everybody coming on board, that in, instead of mission statements that try to describe the culture and how you should be, I mean, part of it you'll get through sort of osmosis being there. Everybody needs to respect what everybody else does because an idea can come from anywhere, regardless of what your background is. And if you can't respect that, probably not the right place for you. Everybody has to work together. No one works in a vacuum, so you have to be collaborative. And if you can't do that, we're probably not the right place for you. And finally, you have to 
apply lateral thinking and be entrepreneurial in your spirit. And if you can't do that, probably not the right place for you. So we look for individuals that possess those qualities, and the rest kind of takes care of itself. So years ago, when when I had started a company, I would show up at your doorsteps looking for advice very frequently. And one of the, th- actually, I think it was probably the first thing you ever advised me was to hire very, very slowly. And I remember we were actually sitting at a Starbucks when you told me that. And, you know, I was in growth mode. I'm like, I'm going to go, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get 50 people and all this. And it's going to be great. And looking back on that, you know, I, th- I think that certainly proved true. But one of the things that I think has, has made Off Madison App great is the quality of people that, that you've had come in there. Now, the flip side of that is when you hire really good people, they're also going to go and start their own thing at some point or, or whatever it is. And, and I guess there's a risk, so to speak, to doing that. But you guys have somehow managed to create a system where you bring in great people and they make incredible contributions to the company. And if they go and they do something else, they're still welcome back with open arms. We're, we're sitting here right now as a result of that. And I think that speaks volumes to the, essentially the way the company has been run and, and the way the company's hired itself over the years. Is hiring something that, that you guys really place incredible emphasis on on a daily basis? Um, yeah, absolutely. Truth be told, we're not super involved in the hiring. We've hired great uh, team leaders, group heads, department heads um, that are responsible for that. But again, we've, pro- we've provided the boundaries for to bring those people on um, and stay within there of the cultural fit, the level of smarts, the testing. We do all of that. But um, yeah, I remember talking to you about that, about hire slowly, but I think I also said fire fast. And the fire fast, the fire fast is more important about protecting a culture than hiring slow. And we've screwed it up so many times and let bad people stay around too long that has a detrimental effect on a culture. Um, so there's the two sides of that: hire slowly, but also fire part ways, you know, quickly. And as far as you know, people going on and doing other things, as long as you do it the right way. You know, um, we had a great time working with you, working with Jay, you know, a whole host, Chris, um, you know, Sisma, yep. um, and every single one of you handled your going off to do your own thing professionally, respectfully, left on great terms. And why would we as entrepreneurs not support anybody else who wants to become an entrepreneur and do their own thing? You know, you know just it's funny it though, right is that that's not the pervasive thought on that, surprisingly enough. It's if you leave, I'm going to be offended by it. You know, whether it's pride, ego, whatever it is, people yeah. don't handle it that way usually. Yeah, all right. So let's look at the lateral thinking part of this. They don't handle it that well because they're not seeing the forest for the trees. When it's done correctly and we're supportive of people leaving to go do their own entrepreneurial things, start their own company, write a book, do whatever, and we've lost quite a few people to that. The actual the benefit to the agency is that that invites more people to want to be a part of our agency that want to eventually do that in their career. So we end up getting smarter people because we supported mm-hmm. the smarter people who left. And when we try to, I think for companies who try to hold too tightly onto employees who have those desires, I think that's a, to their detriment. So we've been a benefit. We've, benef- we've benefited from people like you and Sitsuma and Jay Bear and others by you leaving and doing and being successful, it's actually helped us attract better talent because they know that this is the place where they can really grow. And sure. it, it, I think it's helped us more than it's ever hurt us. Yeah. So switching gears here a little bit, 
for for those that don't know you guys, your personalities could probably not be more opposite. <laughs> and and, that, and that's been been something, that's, and you alluded to it, but that's been something that I think over the years of the agency, it's always, always always been a joke about just the complete difference in the way you guys approach things. Is that one of the key strengths that has allowed this partnership to survive so successfully? Oh, I, I hands down. I also think it comes with mutual respect, though. I mean, when Dave talks about like, hey, on, on paper, we outline very specific roles and decision points. Anybody can do that. The trick is, can you live with it? Absolutely. You know, can you actually say, you, you know, can you do that? I mean, I, I remember there was a client that wanted us to, uh, wasn't even a client. They came to us and said, hey, I've got like 600 grand. I need to get these things done. These spots, TV spots done in the next four weeks. And it was over the holidays. And the more I got into it, I was like, there's no way. This has got like bad written all over it. Dave clearly wanted us to do it from a revenue standpoint. And I said, this is just a point of failure. And he literally said to me, he goes, you know what? I completely disagree, but it's your call. And there was never a word said about it after that. Has that happened frequently over the years? Um, I, I don't know how to define frequently. It just becomes a matter of business after a while. It just, it's literally just like, oh, okay, you know, it was right before. Is right. You kind of um, you just get to know each other and yeah. the decisions you learn from them and what to go. Now, um, have we ever had like a, like a major disagreement? I don't think there's ever been like yelling at the top of our lungs, but you know that the next day it's a little bit. Hey, Roger. Hey, Dave. Yeah, of course. But I can count those on literally one hand. You know, less than a dozen times easily. Just because I think Roger hit the key word, it's the respect. You just have to be like, okay, this is my part of the game. This is my contribution. This is what I'm doing. This is what I, you know, maybe know more about. I've studied more. I've learned on it. You got to respect that. You know, I can't even draw a stick figure. So who am I to give any creative input on what we're doing with a client, you know? (laughs) Being able to draw and creative ability from thinking perspective are mutually exclusive, Dave, here. You have the other, but you, you you know, to, I don't think it happens frequently from the standpoint of this is a major thing and I'm going to defer to you. I think it happens in so many smaller ways frequently. You know, it can be how Dave handles one-on-one with the staff. Like I hate handling staff issues. I really do. And so he wants to take that on more power to him. You know, he says, Hey, this is the bank I'm going to go with because we have this and that relationship with so-and-so. I'm like, all right, whatever. You know, it's not that I don't care. There's a trust factor that he's going to make the right decision, that he's making that decision in the best interest of the company. It also frees up bandwidth for you. Yeah, absolutely. You're able to fully immerse yourself in what you're doing because I know that these things over here are Mm -hmm. taken care of. Taken care of. Just like he knows that I'm not going to worry about that client issue that is they're irritated because of something we messed up or something like that. And I step in to go solve it, and he goes, yeah, I'm never worried about that. If I know that you're on it, then I don't worry about how that client's going to react. So there's such an element of trust with that. Now, you guys worked together, obviously, before creating the company. So did you come in with the necessary level of trust? Or, I mean, presumably the trust has grown over the years, but I think a lot of partners initially do struggle with that trust. They, they have somebody they, they, they think is smart or they think can help them or has access to capital or whatever it is, and you get in bed with somebody that is ultimately not the right person for you. And, and obviously that, that is one of those mistakes that's incredibly hard to back out of. But this idea of trust for entrepreneurs, how much trust do you need in a partner going in? 
a lot. And I, I would – we trusted each other, but it definitely took time to grow. You know, When there were decisions that needed to be made, there was a lot more conversation about it in the early days. Um, well, why? What about this? What about that? And then you get to a point that you're just like, okay, I get it now. There's a trust level. But we've also been in another venture where we brought in a third partner, um, and that didn't work out so well. You know, we've had our failures with, um, you know, adding another partner, not to the Off Madison mm-hmm. Ave business, not the agency business. It was a publishing company a long oh. time ago. Um, and that did not work out well because um turned out that the trust wasn't there on any of the parts, and it turned out to be a failure, yeah, I don't an expensive failure. Yeah, it did. I don't think it's solely trust, though. I do think there was a level of trust starting off the business. There was a much, much higher degree of respect for what he brought to the table and respect probably for what I brought to the table. Um, I honestly think that's the bigger problem for entrepreneurs starting off. Or they're such, I've said this before in kind of a joking way, but many a true said in jest. I said, our partnership works because Dave and I are good enough friends to be great business partners, but not such good friends to be shitty business partners. Yeah, I think that's very yeah. true. I mean, yeah, we obviously, you know, it's like a brother, but we don't hang out on weekends together. Our lives aren't that entwined. And I think that's good. I think a lot of partners get into business and, you know, they live on the same street or their, you know, wives or best friends. And they, you know, there's kind of like almost spending too much time together. We have- so myself and Chris Sietzma. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know if you guys spend that much time together on the other side of things, but you guys oh, have all- All we do is travel together, go to football games together. Yeah. Well, here's all the difference. Time. Here's the difference, though, that you and Chris have been friends for, what, a dozen years now? Probably 15 years. Yeah, you know. 15. So you guys know each other at a way deeper level than, you know, Roger and I knew each other for two three years, years maybe like that, yeah. three um, type of thing. So it, it, that's that that that's a bit different. Yeah. And it was um, just work environment and a couple of dinners. And we've done some of those things. We've, we've done a couple of vacations together yeah. and, and uh, like shared uh, a house rental that we sort of split a couple of times. I mean, so – We've done some of those things, which I think is healthy, but not so much that it impedes the business relationship. Sure. Well, you know, I think the big thing about this, too, just, just with kind of that whole thing, is what, what comes through very clearly when, when you see guys together is there's no ego, at least as it relates to, to the other person. I think for partnerships, ego ultimately gets, gets them. And, and you, you hear it a lot. I think the old adage is partners can't handle success. And something that things grow, you know, so, no, it was me that did it. No, no, it was me that, that brought all of this. You guys are so good at, at understanding what you're good at, but also shedding the ego enough to know, you know, obviously, you know, Roger with creative things, he's got that. I'm not good at that. And I think when you, when you find people starting companies, generally they're going to be, be type A, you know, they, what, you know, they might've gone to the same business school or whatever. That doesn't necessarily lend itself to success. If you've got two people with the same skill sets, they're going to constantly clash time and time again. So being able to check that ego and, and shed that ego has got to be a key to making this work. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Again, I, there's a level of mutual respect that I cannot underscore enough. Um, and I think, honestly, if I were to point to one thing, that would be the trick. So over the years, how have your views on leading and managing companies changed? 
you know, there are the key things that there were key changes that, that, that you learned. So, so for instance, for, for me, you know, I got very, very bad advice, not, not from Dave, not, not from you, Roger. <laughs> when, you. when I was a 25, 26 year old kid, you know, started a, a VC funded company. And you remember this is, you know, when, when Facebook was really growing and you saw a lot of these companies and everybody wanted you to emulate Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. And as a result, I was terrified all the time because I felt that I had to have every answer. I felt that I had to look like I was in complete control and, you know, I had all the confidence in the world and all this is the worst advice I, I ever got. Because ultimately over the years, what I learned is that leaders actually don't need to have the answers. They need to have people on their team that do have the right answers, effectively saying, I have people on my team that are smarter than me. So you got to be able to check your ego. You got to have a heavy dose of humility to be able to do that. But that, that was a fundamental shift in, in my career that actually really, I think, probably allowed my career to take off. Because one, once I figured that, once I was able to empower the people around me, instead of figuring that, or just feeling like, if I don't tell them exactly what to do, they're going to think I'm weak, or they're going to think I'm dumb, or whatever. Like that, that was a fundamental shift in the way things worked for me. I, I will say that uh, my father gave me some really good advice, and it was relating to not business, but I apply it to this. He said, what's good for one marriage is poison for another marriage. And the way Dave and I work, it was never trying to be the next Steve Jobs or the next you know, Zuckerberg. It was just, it was trying to be true to who we are and how we saw things. And so while there are lessons to be learned from amazing people like that, I think trying to emulate someone else's style and way of working, I don't think that's being true to yourself. And I, I, I think we've always been very true to ourselves and what we believe, and that's led to the success. Who was it that said, you know, comparison is the opposition of joy? Theodore Roosevelt. Was it? Mm-hmm. Good one, Dave. I, <laughs> I would have had to Google that. Thank you. Comparison is the thief of joy. Thief of joy, excuse me, yeah. But, but to your point, when you're, when you're sitting here looking around, either looking at other companies that are successful or looking at other CEOs that are successful and thinking, I need to be like that, that that's not going to get you anywhere. Well, first you have to define what success is. Success means something different to everybody. And so many times it's associated with just money um, and that, which is in my anyways, um, not the case. I, you know, Chris, kind of the learnings that you have is, you know, you start a business, you do think you need to have all the answers, be the leader, the person, you know, hire great people, give them a great runway to success, be there to support them, be humble you know, admit your mistakes. And if you let the people around you thrive, um, you as an organization will thrive. Um, You know, I spend now most of my time, you know, working with our leadership team, developing great leaders, Um, you know, because if you can develop great leaders and then they develop great leaders below them, you have that constant, you know, flow of people that are looking to succeed. It's you know, insurance too. Well, it is absolutely insurance, but you know, nothing. It, it's awesome when you see somebody who's been with you five years move up the ranks and take on more responsibility, and you know, learn to be great leaderships. And leadership isn't being a great person of your craft, knowing how to do your craft better. Being a great leader is about how you treat people, being humble, and how you work hard to make them better than you every day level five leadership john maxwell um you know you can go up and down all the books on true level five leadership if um you know you do that the um 
the results that you achieve, not only from a company, but just personally. I will tell you the one other thing that I will attribute a lot of my uh, growth as a leader, and I have a long way to go still too, um, is joining organizations where you're surrounded by other CEOs, entrepreneurs, and that. I happen to be a member of EO Entrepreneurs Organization, a global, but a big part of that is a CEO forum. And having that trusted group of advisors where you can go in and talk to other CEOs and learn from them. Um, Because what I did learn, 98% of every entrepreneur's, every CEO's challenges or anybody in a leadership, creative director, whatever, they're the same regardless of industry. And you can learn from the people around you, not just trying to figure it out all yourself. Absolutely. For each of you individually, as it pertains to the company, what's the best mistake you've made? That's an amazingly good question. I was due for one. <laughs> I'm repeating that that's an amazingly great question so that I have time to think about it. <laughs> I, 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 I will jump in there. Unfortunately, I have to say I'm a slow learner, and it's a mistake that I made several times. Um, but I touched on it earlier. When you – the 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 worst but the best mistake that I've learned is that when you have um, a person within your organization that is a cancer, that is a gossip, you know, causes problems or whatever, when you let that go on, it can destroy the culture of an organization. It lets others believe that it's okay to act that way. And it's the quickest way where we've had some of the dips in our organization is where we've kept people that we know don't belong there around too long. And it, I say when you say the best mistake, because it took me two or three times, took us. I'm not going to take all the blame for this one, Roger. Um, <laughs> you know, we learned the importance of, you know, you can have the best financials. You can – you can have great clients, but if you have bad people, it will kill your organization, and you just got to get rid of that. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think that probably is the best mistake. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to call this person out, but early on in, in the company, we hired somebody in a position where this person's experience was amazing, and this person was wicked smart and amazing at their job. And after a few years, you recognize that what this person wanted out of a company and our culture were not the same thing. And it taught us both a pretty valuable lesson on what to look for in terms of other leadership uh, as we grow the company. And um, I think I take that lesson to heart pretty well. Absolutely. The one other one I would say is especially entrepreneurs starting out, the the thought that any Money is good money. Any green money, anybody who's giving you revenue is good money, is not true. Bad clients can have an incredibly bad negative effect on an organization also. And so not all revenue is good revenue. Sure. There's incredible opportunity costs associated with that. Looking back, what's your proudest moment the company? I'm going to point to something that is incredibly benign and um, and it's just a snippet of a of a story that is much larger but a couple of years ago um a couple of years ago I was on Facebook and I was tagged in an image we have 
I don't know how many staffers, uh, former staffers in San Francisco, eight or nine or so. Maybe there's, there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> um, but about four or five of them had thrown a party in San Francisco, and it was called a wear it once party. So it was a lot of girls, and they clearly had a lot of bridesmaids dresses. And but they decided to take a, a picture, and they took a piece of cardboard and they wrote O M A S F on it, and they took that picture and they tagged us in it and uh, they put it on Facebook. And it was that realized at that point how we've created a culture that has developed lifelong friendships. Um, and it's just, I'm really proud of what people have gone on to do professionally, but the personal relationships that we've helped inspire or, or put together because of the culture, I'm really proud of that. And that was just a moment where I'm like, how do you put a value on that? How do you put a dollar value that we've created a place where people can work together, do amazing work and become lifelong friends? It's, it's amazing how, you know, in, in that case, it's not, you know, it's not a monetary goal. A lot of people think, oh, I'd be you know, getting to this, this revenue number or this, this client, but, but it's, it's things like that. And frankly, I owe a lot to the, the company just in that, in that vein alone, because, you know, my business partner now came from there. Um, I met my wife because Jessica Hayward impersonated me um, on an online dating site. I remember that now. I, <laughs> I forgot that. about that. I remember goofing on her oh, about that. That. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, there, there are, and you know, many of my best friends still came out of there. Ke- Kelly Santina, Jay Bayer, all those people that that were were so important. Even lo- looking around our our wedding, even it was, it was so many of these people and. It really extended beyond business, and I can't think of anywhere else where that's really really happened. Sure, I have friends from other businesses, but it was you know it became very clear to me there. I think at one point we were sitting around in a company meeting, and actually I think it was Hayward that looked around the room. And she said to me, "I don't think there's anybody in here that I would feel weird or uncomfortable if I had to go to lunch with right now." She mm-hmm. said, "I would actually look forward to doing that." And I think that actually started a program where I think we had rotating lunches or something. Right. Lunch rounds. We lunch still around. do it. We still do it. Still <laughs> do. We have one coming up August twenty eighth. Yeah. So we yeah, we still do it. Yeah. For yeah. everybody who's listening, fifteen lunch years around, later. Yeah. For everyone listening, a lunch around. Uh, to, and feel free to steal this idea for your company if you're listening to this podcast. Is uh, you divide up your company into groups of say four, maybe five people, and who don't really work together. And uh, you force them to have lunch together, and then we all get, you know, and you give you can give people subjects or contests, and we've done little things like that during the lunchtime. Uh, but then we all collectively as a company meet up after lunch uh, to have ice cream or dessert or some sort, something like that. But yeah, it, it, it's a very effective way to put people in a situation where they have to get to know each other. It's, it's, it's incredibly valuable, and, and it's, it's a lot of fun beyond that. So what about you? Proudest moment. Um, I'm really proud, like what you and Chris are doing, what, um, you know, others that were part of OMA that have gone on to achieve their own successes, some, you know, great things, which is, you know, awesome. I'm also very proud of some of the other relationships, you know, OMA is about relationships that matter with our team that work together with our clients, with how we work with vendors. I'm very I guess you could better than, you know, Roger and I too. I think we have a fairly good reputation both as an agency and as individuals around um, the market. And that's really important, you know, that, um, you know, I can't 
take a bucket load of money with me to my grave, but I can take my reputation and the agency's reputation and the people around it. Um, so those things is what, um, you know, I love seeing other people do so well and succeed and go on to do great things. So to that end, what is success to you? What is success to me? Yeah. Um, success to me is about, you know, being happy, enjoying what I'm doing. Um, you know, I still, 20 years later, while our roles have definitely changed, I still love what I do every day, get up and doing. Um, you know, I'm success to me is, uh, is a great family. You know, I've been blessed beyond what I should be with a family. So, you know, if I look to my core values that go to integrity and a happy and supportive family, um, you know, continuing to learn. But also I think that um, it's fair to say that Roger and I through Off Madison Avenue made a difference in our community in some ways too. You know, we've supported tons of nonprofits. We've done work. We've given money. Roger and I have both set or have both set, sat on and continue to set on both um, local and global boards now that we're both um, on and that, you know, we've made giving back an important part about an important part of Off Madison Ave um, that has gone through many organizations in this community. What about you? What's success look like to you, Roger? Um, you know, I I would love to just say ditto um, because I think Dave and I see things the same way. I think it is about how have you built enough of a not a legacy about me personally, but a legacy in terms of the quality of the company and the quality of people's careers within and beyond that company um, and and having a great family. And so that all of that feels more important to me than how much money we ever made in the company. And so that that level of reputation, that level of legacy, to me, that is a... a a marker of success. So kind of last, last train of thought here, the future. Do you guys actively talk about what you want the future of the company to be, or do you, do you have plans for the future? I'm making it up as I go. I, I don't know about Dave. <laughs> absolutely. We absolutely do. I mean, you know, you've been there with it for a part. You look back to what we were doing on day one of this organization, um, you know, from mocking up ads and sending out press releases to what it is today. Like many industries, the marketing advertising is in a constant state of evolution right now, and um, you know we've we've tried hard to stay ahead of that with from traditional to digital to now software company that we're incorporating into that, um, and a lot of other new technologies um, that you know we've built a software component of our organization now. So yeah, we constantly 20 years later is to how do we continue to sustain and grow and it's not a maintain mentality at all. Yeah. I don't think the the future goal for us has ever changed because we've always been about how do we as an organization through the relationships we build stay at that forefront of how brands and customers need to communicate. And there's no finish line on that. The tools have changed. The channels have certainly changed and skill sets have changed. But that intersection um, is a place that we always like to be and to hang out. And again, there's just that you're always going to be pushing forward toward that because 
you will never actually ever reach that goal because it's you're in a constantly yeah. changing environment. And complacency would be the killer. Well, the best goals are truly never achievable. You're exactly right. Yeah. There is no finish line. Exactly. There yeah, is, it gets back to loving what you do. Success right. continually changes. You know, there there is no finish line. You know, people like us, you included there, sorry to include you with us, but we're never we're never happy with you know that we've reached the pinnacle that we've gone as far as we can there's always the next thing and that again that's not money by any means that's you know what we achieve in our professional yeah. lives our personal lives all kinds of stuff there's there's definitely an appreciation for the status quo but the status quo is not a comfortable place for us to be no but but to, to your point you know the the certain amount of money or whatever it's it's all a facade so I, I had a, a chance to talk to, to several billionaires, and I would ask them what their biggest regret is. And every single one of them said, I wasn't around more for my kids. Yeah. And you get to this point where it's like, you know, time is, the, is kind of the ultimate wealth. And frankly, time is probably the closest thing we can actually have if we're looking for a tangible success measure. Because time is breeds relationships and everything else and those are the things that we can never get back you know you can always try to find a way to make more money or, or whatever but there are so many experiences and this really played played big for me you know kind of transitioning my career is you know i saw how much my time was effectively being wasted at a company and, and doing things that you know might have mattered to the company but didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things it mattered to me if I was around to see my kids grow up, I, it mattered to me if I was around to influence them and, and so that they really knew me well. And, you know, that to me is really what success has become. And, and I used to think, even four years ago, I probably thought the complete opposite. I probably thought success was a, was a title at a, you know, however big company. And it's an illusion because you're never going to be happy once you get that because there's always going to be somebody with a better title that you're comparing yourself to. That's like the one thing I've never cared about titles of just call me chief cook and bottle washer. It wouldn't matter. I, I will, I will say this and this goes to Dave um, because I, I never, I never wanted kids growing up. I mean, like when I was in my twenties and thirties and now I find myself with two and I, I love it. They've made me a better person. Um, but Dave from day one has always talked about how family is so important here and, and took the time for himself to make sure he spent time with his kids and, and he emphasizes that with all the staff as well. You know, like, you know, well, Sasha was in yesterday with her with her child. I mean, on any given day, whether your kid's a canine or your kid's a human, <laughs> you know, there's two or three of them running around the office, and and that's great with us. Uh, remember, I've been teaching art masterpiece at my kids' elementary school the last four or five years, and I remember somebody about a year or so ago said, "Oh, we have this internal meeting." And I said, "Look, just reschedule the internal meeting." I'm like, "Oh, well, we we can." I'm like. Yeah, you can. I'm going to go teach art masterpiece to my kid because 20 years from now, me teaching this class is going to be something I remember. Me being in this internal meeting isn't. So get your priorities right. Yeah, it is. And I think it's interesting, too, or important, I should say, as an employer to have that perspective as well because you don't understand how that weighs on your employees. So when, when our twins were being born, um, I was actually set to present at a board meeting. And I was told, no, you, you got to present this meeting and, you know, Joy's in, in labor and it was a very risky pregnancy and, you know, they were what, 28, 29 weeks. So they were, they were, they were pretty small and you're torn between this, you know, these kind of two sides, these two opposing forces of, you know, I need to be there because this is obviously a pivotal moment in my life and you need to be there for your wife and all that. But the flip side is 
This is also how I support my family. Mm-hmm. This is how, how this is where their health care comes from. This is where the roof over our head comes from. And not having that perspective as an employer to understand the pressure that you put on people when you force them to choose like that is incredibly detrimental to in, in a lot of different ways. So I, I think just having a heavy dose of empathy as, as employers, and you guys obviously do, and I think that's also something that we, we probably should have touched on, is just understanding how other people think in, in, in relation to the impact things have on them is absolutely crucial if you want to run a company that has any semblance of success or impact on people's lives. Yeah, we get uh, we get schooled all the time, particularly from uh, uh, Sasha, our director of client services, on emotional intelligence. <laughs> and, and so uh, that's not lost on us now. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I appreciate you guys spending some time here. You, you both individually and in the company collectively have had a tremendous impact on my life and even where I am to this day. I, I owe a lot to you guys. Thank you. I cannot say enough good things about Off Madison Ave. And I know we have a lot of CEOs and a lot of VP and, and SVP level folks that listen to, to the show. If they want to learn more about Off Madison Ave or Lighthouse PE, how do they do it? OffMadisonAve.com, LighthousePE.com. Pretty simple. Perfect. And you can always drop me a line at uh, Chris at LeadingByTheBook.com. Shoot me a message if you want more info or a connection to these guys. Always happy to do it. But to both of you, thank you very, very much. No, thank you. Thank you, thank Chris. You very Appreciate much. it.